David Elliott's journey to becoming CEO of Trees for Cities is a meandering one via management consultancy work in London and clearing landmines in Afghanistan, Cambodia, Sierra Leone and beyond. Now he works for Trees for Cities, which is the only UK charity working at a national and international scale to improve lives by planting trees in cities. Trees for Cities get stuck in with local communities to cultivate lasting change in their neighbourhoods, whether it's revitalising forgotten spaces, creating healthier environments, or getting people excited about growing, foraging, and eating healthy food. This episode is sponsored by Happy People Hike, which aims to inspire passion and encourage well-being through the outdoors. Happy People Hike believes in the power of fresh air and the camaraderie of strangers, the genuine joy experienced on the side of a mountain. This is a feeling they try to bring back to everyday life because being outdoors can lift even the lowest of spirits and they hope to share that with you. To find out more, please visit www.happypeoplehike.com. Young people, they often worry that you need to pick one career and pick right at an, at an early age, so straight after school or uni. But And you are now CEO of Trees for Cities, a fantastic charity, but your journey to get there has been somewhat meandering. So what was your first job straight after finishing university? Um, well... Uh, a number of sort of minor jobs to start with. But my first, I suppose, real job, I, I came out of university and I went to work for a large management consultancy in London, um, which seemed a little bit like the order of the day at the time. So most of the people I knew, friends from university, were heading down to London and um, finding various sort of corporate jobs. So I, I sort of slightly followed followed that trail um, and, uh, yeah, ended up... Uh, working for big business, which felt a little bit strange at the time because I didn't really know much about it. I'd just done a biology degree. Um, and so why I was, um, why I had any skills or, or expertise to go and be advising businesses was a, was a mystery, but I was offered the role and um, ended up spending a few years living and working around London for uh, for some fairly major corporations. So did you, did you just do that because you just felt that was what was expected of you? Or did you, did you not have any better ideas or did you actually think that was what you wanted to do well it's a good question i, I think um i think it was a, at the time it was a sort of real lack of, of of understanding where where i wanted my career to go i'm going to be totally honest i um you know i wanted to I, I think i wanted to come to london i wanted to at the time be in a place where i knew lots of people and had lots of friends and to get some decent experience under my belt and, and sort of kick off my career in some way or other but i didn't know what that was going to be so um and i think you know that that was something i slightly you know if i was going to be honest i slightly fell into that to some degree um but you know it was a good it was a good experience at the time it, it, it sort of grounded me with um i suppose my first real job really um and and you know taught me What's what I had to do to, to get up in the morning and go to work and do a decent day's work, which was something that perhaps from days of university was uh, had slipped a little bit from from you know a few years of having lots of fun and then doing lots of travelling before and after university. Um, so no, it wasn't it wasn't part of a grand career plan. Um, but I think that's sometimes how it happens. I think yeah, I think I'm not one of I'm not one of those people. I guess at that point in my life who had that had that view of, of how my life was going to play out or, or had a, a particular profession like being a doctor or lawyer that I had planned at that point. So it was a matter of starting to test the water a bit and see where it went from there. So yeah, you've moved through all sorts of different things. Was it was they um was there any sort of strategy? Were they sort of stepping stones to where or where you wanted to go? Or were you just trying to take the most interesting fork in the road at each time? I think at that point, I think that first job was 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 very much, um, uh, uh, you know, wasn't it wasn't really grounded in a strategy as such. Um, it was, as I say, you know, it gave me some really good experiences and actually then allowed me to have a bit of time to, to think and reflect. And I think having had a few years at the time living in London, living in the city um, in my, I guess it was my sort of mid to late 20s, um, I think it, it gave me. Uh, it gave me enough time to, to think about what I really wanted to do. And I think what I really wanted to do was to do 
at, the, at that point in, in my life at least was to to do work that um, was much more aligned to what I was you know my interests my interests at the time were things like international travel um exploring you know see, really seeing the world and doing things which which I felt was were pushing me in a different direction and in a different way so I after a few years of that I started to explore alternative um lifestyles alternative jobs um i wanted to break out of the city actually it felt like it wasn't the, t- the place i wanted to then be spending the next period of my life so i i, I went looking for uh, the most you know in, in a way the most interesting jobs i could find and i was very very fortunate i got an opportunity having contacted um, a range of organizations and explored and, and talked to people about what you know what's out there um i got this amazing opportunity to um, go and work for an organization called the Halo Trust, which um, is, a, is a massive global landmine clearance organization. And I was sort of given, a, given a, an opportunity. I, was, was, I remember picking up the phone and, and getting the job offer. And I was basically set, told, you know, in a month's time, uh, we need you to be packing up your bags, quit your job and go off and live in Cambodia and train to clear landmines in Cambodia and, and lead some teams from there. And for me, that was absolutely, I didn't need to think twice about that. It was, okay, I'll, I'll accept that on the spot. That's exactly the sort of adventure, the opportunity that I was looking for after a few years of living in London. And and, and that's really, in a way, where my career went from there. And I think that then set the tone for you know the next, whatever it was, uh, 15 years or so of my career since that point. So what did your friends and family think when you decided to turn down I mean, the sort of corporate career ladder, which leads you towards respectability and decent amount of cash and a, and a nice p- pension and a gold watch in the long run. What did they think when you decide to jackal that in and go and clear landmines in Cambodia? I think probably family were slightly surprised, perhaps not so much about the change, but about the, the subject matter itself. Um, I think it's a fairly... <laughs> big extreme, a big change. And also, obviously, uh, it, what what sounds like a, a fairly uh, high-risk environment to be putting oneself in. So I think from family and, and parents' perspective, they were, they were probably a little bit concerned and, uh, and they probably recall a few conversations that were a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, questioning, perhaps, would be the best way to put it. I think friends at the time, my memory was, was not perhaps too surprised, both in the sense of I think you know people at that point in their career still sort of you know as I say uh, mid mid to late twenties, out of university for a few years are still exploring. Lots of people are still exploring, getting into different things and trying different things out. So perhaps you know less less surprise. It would be more of a surprise now because I suppose people people's lives and careers have settled down. So when people do make major changes, it it perhaps it perhaps is a bit more bit more of a, a shock but at the time i think that was probably just part of of what people were up to i had many friends at the time who were radically changing their jobs actually it had started off doing you know very much city type jobs and becoming teachers or retraining in, in very different walks of life so you know that that period of time a lot of people were were chopping and change i think that's a good thing i think you know it is important to you know for younger people who are coming out of university who are spending a few years trying things out you know you don't have to necessarily get 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 you know get into something which is going to be the, that career for life there's plenty of opportunity to chop and change in those early years so and it, you know i think it's a really important time to do that actually um you know some people just need to do that they need to explore and they need to think and they need to let things settle down and, and try things out in order to you know to, to work out what that right path is yeah yeah absolutely so you you uh, ditched you ditched your suit and tie and flew out to cambodia to go clear some landmines uh, what on earth qualifies you to go clear landmines well i suppose a bit like my previous job i had no qualifications for that whatsoever <laughs> that, that runs, that's a sort of theme that runs through my my, my, my jobs um i um i suppose that the main qualification was was the desire to do it and the, the the you know the um probably not too many people wanted to put themselves in that position um it was uh i was you know literally the first day i arrived i remember arriving late at night in cambodia the next morning i was told we're going to be back on the land rover we're going to be going out to the field and starting the training there was no chance there was no time or opportunity to to settle in and, and have a few nice quiet days enjoying the cambodian towns and cities it was it was get out to the countryside and start uh, learning how to dig up mines so i was i was i was taken out there i was um given given the briefing by the the local teams out there Given the the protective equipment, the visors and, and the the jackets, etc., 
and and started to 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 sort of work on on dummy minefields, learning how to find a mine with a metal detector and then how to dig it up. And once you then dug it up, the main way to destroy it is to is to is to set up a, an explosive chain and blow it out of the ground. And it was all very incredibly exciting stuff. But uh, I spent the next few weeks or months, I can't remember how long what it was exactly, sort of training on that and then starting to to do it myself um, as a member of a mine clearance team in Cambodia who were who were basically ex military Cambodian army um, ex soldiers who had been decommissioned and, and would been retrained as now mine clearance team. So I was I was put in with them for a few weeks and just lived live with them in their tents and eating with them, living with them, and and really learning the ropes. And it was one of the most amazing grounding experiences of my life. Um, and the you know the notion is that you you know you learn the very basics of of, of the technique, and from there you can then take that and you can uh you know that's always with you and then you sort of uh, then i was rapidly sort of moved up through the management scheme really so i started to to take on the the oversight the responsibility of a small team of say seven of them and then a bigger team of, of 20 or 30 and then you know after a few months of that starting to, to run very large teams of mine mine clearers uh, in cambodia and then across the world so i moved from cambodia um i then uh, i think i then worked in uh, sudan moved to Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, Kosovo. Uh, I then changed and worked for a different organization in the same field and, and worked out in West Africa, in Guinea-Bissau, in, in Liberia, in Western Sahara. So I moved around and worked in some of the most amazing corners of the planet um, doing this work, uh, which was which was you know, the most exciting and exhilarating and also fulfilling work I think you know one could ever do. It was an extraordinary few few years of my life. Was it not terrifying? um the very very first time absolutely terrifying so that, you know, that first mine well you, you know you learn as i say on a, on a dummy minefield you're there pretending to dig up mines that have been well you're digging up mines but they've, they've had the explosives taken out of them so there's no, no no chance of anything going wrong then you're put into your lane you know you get a one meter lane with your with a stick in front of you and you move that stick forward very very slowly as you as you scan the ground for metal and when you first get that beep, that you think that might be the first mine, and then you've got to start digging down um, very, very carefully to, to expose the mine itself. And yeah, that very first time of doing it is, is a very, very terrifying experience. You know, you do it so slowly. And I think that, that first one probably took me five hours to dig up. And as you do it more and more, you know, by the time you've done it for a few years, you, you can do that in a few minutes. Um, but that first one, you know, you're sweating profusely in, in the hot tropical Cambodian heat with sweat dripping down the front of your visor and, and sort of slightly blinding you at the same time and just desperately not not wanting to make a mistake. Um, so, yeah, you know, that, that first time, it's but like everything in life, it's often the first times are terrifying. Once you've got over that first step, um, you're, you realize that, you know, often the fear is, is it's the biggest fear itself. And, and then you can just, you know, the more you feel confident in yourself to do it, um, you know, the, the less the less fear you, you feel each time, uh, but it's you know obviously incredibly important to maintain a degree of fear every time, so you don't get uh, mm-hmm. you don't uh, start slipping and, and getting into bad habits. Yeah, I think I would definitely be far too slapdash to be a, a mind clearer. <laughs> um, so now you're a, a CEO now of uh, Trees for Cities. What what is um what's more useful for the work you do now? Um, the time you spent um, working. On these in these remote communities and and for the Halo Trust clearing landmines or doing an MBA at Cambridge <laughs> University. <laughs> it's a leading question now. Well, so yeah, I, I was you know what, I was trying to think how I could ask that in a way that wasn't me. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I'd be entirely happy if you say no. Landmine clearing is useless for running a business in London. What's the what's the uh, <laughs> the measured answer? Well, you know what? I think it's um, it's an interesting one because when you reflect back on on, on various jobs and career choices, and, and you sort of piece it all together, and, and certainly if, if, if like myself, you, you know, you've had a, I guess a, a, a non-linear route, um, it, you realise actually that there are things you pull out from all steps that are incredibly important. So, you know, from my early days working as a management consultant, actually now in my work, a lot of the work I do is with big businesses, actually um, working with big businesses on their sustainability agendas, for example, and, and, and working with very senior people in business, big businesses and, and learning that environment, learning how to to work alongside the corporate world is now an incredibly important part of, of what I do. Um, so that, and so that goes all the way back to those early days and then you know if i look at my mind clearance work you know the thing that that really offered me at the time was was a was was a, a unique uh, sort of opportunity to to manage people at a fairly young age uh, point in my career I and mean, I, I was 
you know, into my sort of late 20s, early 30s, I was managing sometimes, you know, groups of hundreds of staff and, and the responsibility behind that and the, the people management aspects is something that, that again, is, has been a hugely helpful thing, um, you know, when you move into a role like a CEO role where, you know, you've got huge responsibility for the people working in the organization and and the MBA, which was was what I did. So after I finished um, working with the mine clearance work, I, I came back to the UK after a few years of that, felt, you know, slightly uh, weary perhaps of, of traveling the world and doing that sort of work. Um, I wanted to spend a year back in the UK doing some studying. And and that was that was when I did my MBA at uh, Cambridge University. And, I, and it was an amazing experience, in, again, in, in many different ways. And, and uh, and it, you know, taught me some of the, the technical aspects, the way of thinking about management and leadership, which you know you get the practical experience, but actually being able to blend that with some of the the, the academic and the theory, the theory behind it, is was very important. And again, all of those things I take away, and and, and they don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily, I don't think about them every second of the day as I'm as I'm running an organisation, but you know, they come back to you in different ways, and you, and you draw you draw on them in different ways, sometimes sometimes consciously and sometimes subconsciously. Um, so yeah, I think all of those roles and, and, and the roles in between when I did my MBA to, to the role I'm doing now, again, various aspects, you know, that, 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 that have helped me in terms of where I am now. Um, and I think that's really important as well to, to realize it doesn't, you know, if you do have a nonlinear career, there are lots of things you can pull out for lots of different types of jobs that you do. Um, and you never quite know uh, what, what's going to be useful when. Um, so, you know, don't, it's not something to worry about. It's not something to, 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 to be embarrassed about in a sense or to let you hold you back. Actually make the most of those experiences and, and, and understand in yourself what it is that you've gained from them. Yeah. I just read recently a book called The Hundred Year Life, um, which is saying that lo- loads of people and certainly younger people are all going to live to be 100. And therefore, it's a mad system to do a few years of training in your early 20s and then expect that that training will suffice for your work for the next 50 or 60 years. And it talks about the need um, for evolution of our skills, but also just our own sanity to change direction often and and pick and choose the good bits and the different things we've done in our life and that changing directions fine. And I found that a really helpful and refreshing look on modern working life i guess that's fascinating yeah and i i couldn't i couldn't agree more with that and i think you know it's um i guess our careers are going to become for some of us at least longer and longer as, as as our lifespans do increase um and and you know the financial requirements to to work longer no doubt and uh and i think just also you know to keep life interesting i you know i guess some mm-hmm. people love love the career they're in and very happy to do that for 50 years if that's what it means but um for other people they're just not built like that and actually having the ability to chop and change and to try things out is what keeps people going and what keeps people interested and interesting so i think that's a great a great outlook actually and uh, it sounds like a fascinating Mm. read yeah it's good so um you eventually wound up at trees for cities where you are now uh what do trees for cities do so it's it's we're a charity. Um, we've been going for twenty about twenty seven years now. So very very well established charity um, that started off once upon a time as Trees for London, and it was a group of guys in London who who were sort of party animals and, and threw some parties to raise some money for trees, which was their second passion, uh, and then used that money to go and plant trees around London. And it sort of that that model actually they found it, it gained a lot of popularity very quickly. So they they, they continued doing it and formalized a charity and it went from there. So that was sort of why, why have you stopped why have you stopped fundraising via massive parties? Well we actually we're we're trying to trying to do that again. But um, <laughs> at the time the guys who were the founders themselves, they were DJs themselves. They actually had a good a good excuse to do it and a good way to 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 put on cheap cheap parties with all of their friends so it, it is something you know it's core, core to our, our culture and history so we are we are actually we have been trying to explore ways of doing that recently again to sort of re, relive that culture but um uh, yeah so so it's it's it, it's a as i say a char- charity that's 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 how it was founded as trees for london originally and we then started to do that work um tree planting work uh, outside of london in, in cities across the country and, and, and internationally and hence became trees for cities um, and we're now, you know, we're now a national charity um, with some international projects. Uh, we work in towns and cities up and down across the UK, all parts of the UK. And we really sort of focus on on where, uh, not too surprisingly, where there is le- least green, where in our towns and cities, where, where they're deprived of greenery, trees and green and high quality green spaces. And, and often those areas, more often than not, overlap with areas of social deprivation as well so the areas where people you know have the poorest health indicators and economic indicators 
for example, are also those places that, that are the greyest and, and that's greener. And the, you know, that correlation is very interesting for us. And that's that's our hotspot. So we're, what we try to do is bring bring more green, bring more trees in, into those spaces. And I think at the time when the organization was formed, it, you know, trees were seen as something which were very much an essential part of the city, but perhaps mostly focused around the aesthetics of the city, about softening the, the grey of, of, our, of our urban environments. But as over recent years particularly, there's been a huge amount of evidence around how much benefits they bring in so many different ways. So the trees themselves, are, you know, for example, if you look at the climate, climate change, issues around climate change, not only are they a, a means of, of storing carbon and locking in carbon in a very important way, and actually there's a huge a movement now across the UK to be planting millions of trees over the coming years to try and to try and um, you know, reach our climate change targets, but also to adapt to climate change. So things like in cities, you know, the, the centre of cities can be up to about five or six degrees hotter than the periphery or outside of the city. So trees can provide that shading, for example, a very important way of shading and absorbing heat. They can they can prevent flooding. They can actually absorb lots of water, obviously through their root systems, and also prevents rain reaching the ground quickly in, in hard permeable surfaces they can prevent flooding which is becoming a, obviously another major issue of climate change and if you look at other issues like air pollution for example trees are a way of, they absorb a lot of the, the the bad pollutants that get generated from vehicles for example so they help to clean our air localized air quality so you know they're, they're providing a huge range of benefits to us that we we don't really realize and we're starting now to quantify those benefits and and actually realizing that you know if we think about the infrastructure of our cities which we historically think about transport or uh, buildings, but actually the green space is as vital a part of our infrastructure and the design of our cities as, as everything else. And and so suddenly trees are, are becoming very very prominent in the way people are thinking about um, you know how we're how we're building and designing our cities and, and the lifestyles that we're living. That was an excellent monologue. Thank you. Hmm. I can, go, I can go on. I can go on and on, Al, if you want to. I, I, I'm become such a sort of tree advocate and uh, you know there, there's so there's so much here that we could uh, we could explore but you probably don't want me to, to go too much <laughs> you galloped through half of the questions on my page in that uh, <laughs> how many trees have uh, trees for cities planted so we we had our in our 25th year which was a couple of years ago we, we celebrated our planting our millionth urban tree um in the grounds of st thomas's hospital which is great um it was uh, planted by Sir Michael Palin, which was, was lovely to have him. He was he uh, interestingly he planted one of our first trees twenty five years earlier. Oh wow! Um, so he came out again. We managed to dig dig him up or dig him out. I think um, <laughs> that's probably bad bad turn of phrase. But yeah. uh, he, he he came up and uh, he planted that tree. It was fantastic. It was, it was a real pleasure, mm-hmm. privilege to meet him and to have him planting that tree. Um, and we, so we planted just over about a million uh, over a million trees now, which you know in itself is a vast amount. You know, you hear of tree planting programs of billions and trillions of trees, and that's that's you know that happens out in the you know in in, in the more rural environments. Our, our work is is not so much about trying to plant you know lots and lots of trees it's about making sure we plant trees where they're going to have the biggest impact and, and obviously in an urban environment it's not so much about volume because you don't have the space it's about finding out where those spaces are going to most benefit from having better green spaces and, and more trees so yeah that there, there is that issue isn't it with cities of limited amounts of space available um presumably it would be a lot cheaper and a lot easier just to go and find some massive empty moorland somewhere and plant a million trees on that and do 25 years work in a few days yeah i mean i suppose it it, 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 and that's that that can have huge benefits um you know there is a lot of there is a lot of planting going on in all parts of 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 the country now there's certainly ambitions to um you need to be very careful obviously not to be converting valuable environment uh, land that might have um, environmental benefits or you know natural value properties to into into woodland just for the sake of it um you know it's in the past for example um lots of peat bog has been converted to to, to forests and what we've realized is actually that's been quite detrimental to the environment those peat bogs themselves were a huge carbon sink and now they've been turned into forests and actually they've got less sort of natural capital value um, so you know exactly. we have to be careful not to just plant a tree in every everywhere we can think of yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's not always the best solution. Um, and just planting volumes and volumes of trees isn't always the best solution. But of course, yeah, we, you know, we're, we're huge advocates for creating you know, new swathes of woodland and forests where we can in the UK, certainly. But, but it, I suppose that, 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 you know, that provides a different set of benefits. You know, new forests, new large swathes of woodland, fantastic. You know, people can go and 
visit them and enjoy them and they can lock up lots of carbon and they can have huge benefits for biodiversity, etc., assuming you plant the right species of trees. But as I say, our, our work is different in the sense that you know, even a single tree planted in, in, a, in a strategic place on somebody's street or in somebody's park can have you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of benefits in, in terms of what it brings to those communities um, from, from the moment that tree is planted with the community members who can come out and, and plant that tree and feel engage within their community and part of part of their locality look after the tree and then as the tree grows the benefits it will have around as i say the localized air quality and the aesthetic, the aesthetic benefits it will, it will bring to them and, and as much as anything actually it's about bringing people outside so experiencing the outdoors now, as you know as you know very well you know kids kids are spending less and less time outside not just kids all of us but kids there's a real problem for our children you know the, the, the percentage of time that children now spend outside compared to what they used to is it's a fraction so we need to find ways to engage people to get to to get them to love and to to cherish the outdoors and that can happen i think that's often seen as a bit of a, a rural thing you know go out to the countryside and go for a walk but actually for most people now 80 percent of us or more live in towns and cities that has to happen on the doorsteps of, of where we live um and therefore and therefore creating the, the beautiful spaces the green spaces enhancing them and, and protecting them is so vital for, for the way for people's quality of life and for the way our children are going to grow up. And I think COVID has, has shown us that more than anything of how much we've relied upon our green spaces in a time where, you know, we've been able to do, unable to do so much in our lives. Um, and in a way, you know, that, that's really strengthened our resolve to, to make sure that we are throwing all of our energies behind protecting and improving, you know, the, the green spaces that we do have. So what we're recording this now in lockdown. So what changes then could all of this stuff, <laughs> the the chaos of 2020, what changes could, in terms of your work, could this be an opportunity for? What good stuff can come out of this? I think, as I think, as I was saying, you know, I guess we we can use this as a springboard to really, you know, highlight how essential these spaces are. In, you know, in, in the city, there is such a pressure on land. Obviously, you know, develop, you know, the development of land, the pressure for more housing and and, and more commercial property etc and that's fine you know we need that of course but it needs to be done in a way which is is not you know ideally uh, building into into the spaces that we also need for our recreation and our health and our exercise and and our escape and, and everything else that we use these green spaces for so i think to highlight the you know the need to protect those areas and, and to enhance and improve the ones we've got there's a lot of green space in 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 our cities that are pretty poor quality actually they're just a muddy piece of grass people don't really use them there's so much more that can be done for them and actually you know if they are just dead and people aren't using them they are going to be built on and why shouldn't they be in a way if it's just wasted space so you know but what's better is actually to take those spaces and really turn them into places that people want to go and kids want to play in and you know explore in you know so much we can do even with a small space in a city you can achieve so much with it so you know i think it does it does provide that mechanism to to really to sort of Bang, bang the drum for that that you know that 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 need and I get you know there's 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 going to be a huge pressure certainly over the next couple of years financial pressure to to cut corners and to you know to to, to find ways of, of of making money and 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 keeping the economy running so you know I think we're in a period of, of real risk to our green spaces at the moment but hopefully we can get through that and the, the medium to long term benefits can really be appreciated um and i think you know there's a lot of talk at the moment about a green recovery actually which is fantastic i think there's an understanding that, that you know we need to focus on our quality of life and quality of life is hugely related to what we do outside of of our home and work environments but are, are um the green recovery are the in your experience are the councils you work with and government are they actually keen or is it just a trendy thing to pay lip service to do you feel you collaborate with these guys or push against them i think you get a, a from, from a local authority perspective you get a huge range to be honest you get some that are very very serious about it and doing trying to do everything they can and you know there's been a, a number lots of lots of authorities have declared climate emergencies and are trying to create climate emergency plans now which a big part of that is, is around their green spaces lots of them have declared them but haven't yet done much about it and need to do more and there's some that are, that are real laggards and really need to get you know get get on, on the case um, so you get a real range but you know there are many many local authorities are really trying to do a lot with 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 a very limited set of resources i think from a central government perspective again you know there's been a huge desire there there's been lots of new strategies lots of new aspirations and targets put out there but um you know now it's the time to actually converse on that we you know we still live the reality is is you know we live in a in, in a, England or Britain's green and pleasant land but we're actually when we strip that back we live in, in one of the most nature depleted 
countries on the planet, uh, which is really, really quite depressing. So there is an enormous amount we need to do with our natural environments. And, uh, and so, you know, it, it's, it's, it's now about putting the sort of the, the money where the mouth is in a way. It's not just all about the money. It's also about the, ac- the action and, and the desire. But we need to make things happen. We need, we need some really, really ambitious and radical ways of thinking about our natural environments. And, and for us, that can start at the city level. You know, it's, if we're not inspiring people from who are living in cities and kids who are growing up in cities, which, as I say, are sort of over 80% of, of the people in this country, then we don't have much chance of creating that, that radical transformation. So, so again, you know, the value and property of just a single tree, for example, can be huge because that can be the thing that, that, that can inspire a child to, to grow up, to, to want to do much more uh, for, for nature and, and for, for their local environments. So what specific practical steps um, would you like, what things would you like to see actually being done to try and get our cities to be more, more, more appealing as outdoor living spaces to get young people out into green spaces within cities and therefore bring up a new generation of eco warriors and outdoor lovers and healthy people? What practical stuff would you love to see being done? Mm, good question. I, I mean, I think firstly, there's, there's a lot of, as I mentioned, a lot of underused green spaces, and, and actually, you know, for, for for certain parts of society, you know, there, there's there's real sort of um, there's a lot of evidence that, that parts of society just don't use green spaces anything like as much as others. And I think I think where those, and again, there's there's a there's a there's correlations there to areas of deprivation, for example. So what what we need to do is really make sure that even those smaller green spaces are that that might be around you know, estates, for example, are, are, are used and are developed in, in, a, in the best way possible to, to make them the sort of places that people want to go out and use and kids can enjoy, uh, that they're safe, that they're green, that they're, you know, that they're healthy places to be. So I think in, the, in, a, in a sort of inner city perspective, there's a huge amount we can do, even with a very, very limited amount of space and resource. Um, and there's there's a huge amount there we need to do actually. I think that's one of the biggest areas. As you push out further out of towns and cities into areas that are greener and more spacious, then again, you know, you've, we, around London, for example, we have this huge swathe of green belt. And, and what is it? It's mostly farmland or, or underused farmland actually, um, or tenancy farmland, some of it. And it, it, we, we can we can do so much more with that. You know, local authorities could be much more ambitious about using some of this space to actually, for actually uh, converting it for amenity value for people to, to go and enjoy and to really make the most of it. And, and it's not just about local authorities, you know, it's about, it's about communities coming together to do that as well. It's about the, the, the corporate sector, the business sector joining in with that, you know, it needs a collective effort, but there are plenty of great, fantastic spaces. You don't need to go far. And as you know, through your micro ventures, you don't need to go all that far from your doorstep to always find somewhere exciting, but you need, to make those opportunities available you need to make you know the spaces you need to protect them you need to make them the sort of spaces that people want to go to um and you know sadly in, in england particularly less so obviously in scotland but in england and wales we have such crazy rules about people going out and just putting up a tent in the wild you know why not make it make it more make it easier for, for people for kids to go out and just pop their tent up and have an adventure on their doorstep that might just be a few stops up the tube you know we we, we mm. seem to do what we can in this country to to prevent people from exploring and from enjoying the outdoors yeah but one um, one counter argument to that will be as as lockdown gradually eases and people are going out there's just been a huge escalation in litter and people going camping for the first time absolutely trashing places just like festival carnage across the country's wild spaces so when you're working with the young people you work with the sort of community and schools projects you do do you see within them a, a disconnection from the natural world or do, do they seem engaged and concerned i think when we often when you first work with with schools primary school we do a lot of our work with primary schools you know often for, for, for many of these kids um their their engagement with nature has been so so limited and you know the first time that they put their hand in a in soil or, or, or see a, an insect it's a sort of a, a repulsion you know a, a, a sort of a fear of repulsion <laughs> but you know the uh, once once that once that's passed you know it's amazing how quickly the transformation can happen for kids who are then you know once they for example plant something and see it growing and engage with it absolutely loving we you know we just hear so many amazing stories and from the schools about how kids have you know who have, who have grown up in for example such inner city environments with such little prior experience or, or opportunity to to be amongst anything green how, how that's transformed their lives and their way of thinking and how how much they get into these projects how much kids love it i know i i i, I 
ensure that you know the vast majority of children actually once they get into that you know trying those sort of things i absolutely love it but it but you know it, it's amazing to see how you know the levels of of, of in, or the lack of interaction that, that so many children um, clearly have had in the past and, and that's a big part of what we do is try to try to provide that and offer it and i think you know coming back to your point around the littering which has been you know incredibly you know one for me one of the real sort of sad aspects of what we've seen in, in you know in, in recent months it has been you know quite tragic really but and i think you need to tease out a little bit what that means you know why does that come from because you know we are trying to encourage people into green spaces and we are trying to talk about the benefits yet clearly there seems to be something there that around a, you know a lack of understanding and respect for them which has it's been really sad and you know i'm sure there's a lot in that and we could you know i, I don't want to philosophize too much but i but 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 it does i suppose for us it, you know it, it, it tells us that there's a huge amount for us still to do for all of us still to do to 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 really get that message across of how how you know how much benefit these spaces are and, and how valuable they are to our to our lives and, and to and I, I guess in a way it might be a reflection of because it's it's quite hard particularly in our country in england to um to get out and wild camp that very few people have had that experience actually um most people experience of campsites of places you know very organized campsites where things are you know there's there's litter bins things are arranged for them and actually it's a very very different experience to go and wild camp and uh, and i think you know if that opportunity was given more from to people uh, from a younger age as well i, I think that, that might you know i think i think that might in a way uh, help help the longer term situation of, of you know avoiding people going and, and in a sense sort of destroying or you know using these spaces in a way that they, they shouldn't be used which has been you know as, as you say you know one, one of the real uh, surprises and and um you know un- unpleasant things that we've seen come out of of, of of the period over the last few weeks and months yeah one of the great challenges of well so many aspects of what we're talking about is you need to get a sense of people need to care about stuff for themselves in order to become more engaged and one of the things you guys do a lot of are these volunteer community planting days tree planting can you tell me a bit about those because yeah yeah absolutely well it's 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 core to what we do so we you know we have a relatively small staff um, and actually but but for us the multiplier multiplier effect is is being able to work with with hundreds of people from local communities our volunteers our corporate volunteers who come out as well um and you know to do most of the planting and the actual on the ground work for us um and and, you know that's that's core to what we're doing is trying to get people out to to do the planting to engage with their local spaces and 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 engage with their local communities Um, and it's an amazing thing i mean i know you've, you've you've popped out to our, our projects from time to time as well and has seen you know on a, on a cold frosty february morning saturday morning um you know you turn up and you think you know who's going to possibly come come today and within a couple of hours you've got you know a cadre of hundreds of people from all walks of life all ages all backgrounds are, are coming out you know we're in great spirits to, to plant trees and and do something for them and from, for many of them it's the first time they've ever done it and and the energy is is usually fantastic, and you know by the end of the day, there's a real sense of achievement, and you can look back across a, what was a, a just a, for example, a piece of grassland previously, and look back after a few hours of work and see a new urban woodland has been created, and, and, and you know people feel very proud to be involved in that. And so we, you know, we want to be doing more and more of that. It's um, it's a big thing to arrange groups like that to put those sort of projects on. It costs a lot of money, it takes a lot of time. But you know, actually, that's that's what makes the real change. It's not just getting the trees in the ground, but it's it's the people who come along to do it and, and experience that. It's it's a vital part of, of our work. Yeah, they're fantastic events. I mean, the first one I came to, uh, it was a cold winter day, a tree planting season. And to be honest, I thought, oh man, this is going to be a bit tedious, but it'll be a, a good, worthy thing to do. <laughs> um, but it was actually, re- as you say, a really fun day and so satisfying at the end to just see hundreds perhaps even i don't know a thousand trees planted and i loved how everyone just takes on their own little job so some people like wheelbarrowing the mulch around and you get some people who like digging the holes loads and loads of kids being involved in it so have been really fun and satisfying things to do but one of the um one of the real challenges at the moment with anything to do any conversation about nature or the outdoors is about the the diversity of um the whole scene so in terms of the volunteer community planting days, what what's the sort of diversity of that look like in what you guys do? I mean, I think it's one of the things we're most proud about, actually, because um, I think the there is an issue. 
with within the within the conservation sector of um, you know in terms of the volunteers. If you look at many of the bigger organisations, and you know they're, they're obviously trying their very best to 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 try and diversify as much as possible. But I guess the very na- the very nature of the people who have been their members for many years, who they've been talking to, have been engaging with that sort of work, tends to be uh, people who are more middle class, whiter, living in in more rural, say, middle England parts of the country. If that's how we put it, and you know, there there is a there is a sort of homo- homogeneity to to volunteers, and that's a huge generalisation. But I think that is a fair, to some degree, a fair generalisation, because we work in an urban environment. It, we've we've never, in a way, had that that issue. You know, we we get such a wide diversity of, of people coming into our projects and because because we work in um uh often it, it, as i described earlier places that are some of the more deprived uh, parts of our towns and cities um you know it, it's sad to say but often often the communities who, who live there are from you know a wide diversity of backgrounds um, and, and they're the ones who are coming out and, and and are working on as volunteers on these projects um, and it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing to to, to be able to, to do that and to offer that um, and to bring people, as I say, of all walks of life together. Um, because we also have not just people from the communities, but our own volunteers who sign up on, on the internet. And they come from all parts of the city in the morning to, to come and volunteer. So, you know, you end up with so many different nationalities and people from all sorts of to say walks of life and, and it's you know it's one of the most amazing things actually of, of those projects um and particularly it's also you know lovely where you get a whole family coming out often you know you'll have a, a child with their parents and their grandparents um and you seeing seeing the the, the age diversity as well is, is a really sort of warming thing for us um because that, that's what it's all about you know that generational piece is a huge but huge part of what we're talking about at the moment trees are such a generational uh thing you know they, they take they take they live for hundreds of you know some trees can live for hundreds of years and so they they see the generations they see they, they watch over us in a way they see how how the world changes around us much more slowly than we do um so i think you know bring, bringing that generational aspect to what we do is a really important thing yeah there's that saying that about gives you hope that oh i'm going to totally butcher this but something about um planting a tree which you know you'll never get to sit under the shade of is that there's hope for the human race or something when people are planting trees that they'll never get to sit beneath is that right something along those lines um which is yeah but so my experience of your volunteer planting days was that amazing fun vibrant diversity so many languages being spoken plus the bonus of properly nice lunch so curry had one or some sort of uh, spicy Ethiopian thing. It's not the usual volunteer cheese sandwich type fare. So yeah, that that is that was um, a real pleasant surprise for me about your planting days. Yeah, great. Well, that's good to hear. I know it's um, well. We're hoping to. We're hoping that despite COVID and despite lockdowns or restrictions, we're gonna we're gonna crack on again this winter. You know, we're not gonna try and. Yeah, let it stop us we're going to have to do things a bit differently and evolve mm. the way we're doing things but you know it, it, it can't be you know we've got to keep doing this work it's vital we can't stand still so you know we're gonna there's going to be lots of opportunities again we hope this winter what is your favorite tree oh um my favorite tree i think must be a beech tree i just i just love i love a beech tree i love i love the the beauty of the beach, the the, the soft bark, the silk, the soft silvery bark that you see on the beach tree. I think there is nothing more more beautiful for me. It's such a classic um, tree of our woodlands. Um, for me, it's the it's the the majesty of the woodlands. It's it's it is the tree that I most love. Mm, okay, very good answer. <laughs> um, now I have a tradition at the end of my podcasts to interview ask people questions from this deck of playing cards I've got here in front mm. of me with a deep and meaningful questions about life, the universe, and everything. Are you up for a few of these? Okay. Okay. Well, I'll give it my best shot. Okay. If any of them require too much intellect for you, you can just say pass on any that you don't want or, or, that, or that you wish to swerve. Um, unfortunately, we're not together, so you can't pick the cards. So you will have to just tell. I'm going to okay. flick through and tell when to stop. All right. Stop. Ready? Oh, okay. Well, I'd already gone through the whole deck, so I'll give you the top one. <laughs> um, All right. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Ooh, okay, belief, behavior, or habits. Um, I think the last five years most improved my life. Well, I, said, I, I probably 
go deep and meaningfully into something about my children in that one, but that's probably getting a bit too cheesy, is it? I think uh, I think I tell you what I've done in the last five years. I've I've um, I've picked up my guitar again. Uh, I used to play my guitar uh, when I was a kid, and I didn't play it for whatever it was, probably about 30 years of my life. And a few years ago, about five years, I thought, right, I need music in my life. Music is such a <laughs> huge part of what makes us human beings and, and what we get enjoyment from. So I, I took the great leap of, of picking up a musical instrument. I know you've got that, that experience out of picking up a musical instrument that feels a bit alien in your hands and, and, um, and, and rediscovering the enjoyment of, of creating music. And it's been one of the things that I've most loved doing actually in recent years. And I spend... Mm. My, my night times when, when everyone else has gone to bed and I can, I'm not too embarrassed to sit in my house and, and, and play a few tunes. I, it's, it, it gives me great, uh, a great way to, to relax and to, 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 to reconnect. I think that's been the best, one of the best personal things I've done in the last five years. Very nice. Do you have it to hand? Uh, I don't. And if you're asking me, can I play a bit to you now on, on the podcast, that's probably a straight no. <laughs> okay, right, I'll do another question. Tell me when, tell me when to stop. Let's come back in 10 years. Uh, stop. Ooh. What would the 80 year old version of yourself advise you to do? Mm. Um, gosh, that is a, that's a very philosophical one. Um, what the 80 year old version well hope, to start with i hope i make it to 80 that would be great um <laughs> that would be a, a big achievement um uh, i think i would say make a decision whatever you do in life make a decision um whether it's whether it's the right or wrong decision i think uh sitting on a decision for too long is is one of the most damaging things i guess you can do you know you're gonna you're gonna get things wrong you're gonna get things right and you don't know at the time but you've just got to make a decision on stuff and i think i think for me that's one of the key key things in life um don't beat yourself up about them too much whatever decision you make but at least make a decision and move forward very good right let's do a couple more um tell me when to stop stop if you could magically change one thing in your life what would it be? I would love to not be able to sleep, I think. I mean, I, I, I <laughs> just feel, well, two reasons. Firstly, I absolutely hate getting up in the mornings, as, 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 as you know that one. Now. You see me in the morning in a, in a tent, and you know how difficult it is to, for me to open my eyes. But, um, <laughs> but, but I suppose more, more deeply than that, I, I, for me, time is so precious there is you know it always feels such a huge pressure on time to do everything that i'd love to do and to to achieve everything i'd love to achieve and if only i could use those eight hours or say that you have to spend lying in a bed with your eyes shut you know on on, on doing other stuff then that would be a fairly transformational thing so one day when somebody somebody discovers that pill that you can take that means that your body no longer needs sleep that would be a great day i've got on my shed wall here um a thing it's a grid of 168 squares that's how many hours we have in right. a week uh in a square and there's about i guess about 10 rows and the first four rows so are all orange and sleep yeah it's a massive chunk of time isn't it but it's it also is, very right? important to get well, apparently so. I'd love to. I've always wondered how you know the, the the classic sort of Maggie Thatcher sort of stories of how you could get away with three hours sleep and still function. And uh, personally, whenever if ever I've tried that, um, I'm not in a great way the next day. So it doesn't doesn't seem to work for me, unfortunately. Okay, right. I'll do one more question, and then I'll let you go back to your CEO busy day. Right. Tell me when to stop. Stop. Oh, this is a good one. What book should I read? to make myself more wild, bold, and curious. And perhaps you can tag onto that any book that we should read relevant to our conversation today. Mm, um, gosh, okay. Um, book you should read to make you wild. My, um, oh, that's a tr tricky one. I, I did a book, the, the book that I always reread, which is for me the classic book of of combination of making you feel more wild and but also making you think think about life is um jonathan rabban it's the passage to, to juno the uh, his, his trip that he did in a in a sailboat around 
Canada and Alaska, a part of the world that you know mm. always holds a lot of fond memories for me as well. But that, that's a book that just that just it bites into you when you read it in so many ways. It's an it's an amazing book, absolutely amazing book. Um, and that's the one that if I'm ever feeling like I need a, a little bit of injection of wildness back into my mind, both sort of outdoor wildness but philosophical wildness, that's the one I'd resort to. Um, and is there a book that you wish that you'd like a large stash of that you could just to give to everyone who comes through the Trees for Cities offices? A, a tree-related book. Um, I, what have I, um, I think, I mean, I, there's so many brilliant books, nature writers, you know, you've got some amazing nature writers, past and present, and, and you know, any, anything, anything written by Robert Farland, it was, would, you'd have a stack of those and give them out. Anything written by Al Humphreys, you'd have a stack of those and give them out, of course. Like, yeah. re- re- recently, I've, I've, I've actually just read um, George Monbiot's Feral, and that's a, a really inspiring read in terms of, you know, getting out and, and, and re rewilding our lives and rewilding our, our environments. And, and I think that's one that it's very difficult to read that and not, not understand how, how vital it is for all of us to be, to be in nature and understanding nature and, and, and doing what we can to bring it back into this, into our country. Um, so that, that for me is a, a seminal text of, 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 of what we do. Yeah, that's definitely a perspective shifting book. Um, my final question is how can we help Trees for Cities? um i'm not going to say give us lots of money of course i'm going to say um you get, get out what we want to do at the moment is actually inspire the next generation so we we are you know we're very aware that as a sector organizations like us it's always been quite top down it's about you know we've been putting on events for people to come out and, and, and be involved which is fantastic we don't want to do any less of that but actually the real game change is going to become is going to come when, when people want to do it themselves and are able to do it themselves. So what we're trying to do at the moment is, is create more of a bottom-up approach. Um, so to provide resources, training, um, you know, an ability to answer questions, um, a way for people to, 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 to know what to do if they want to go out themselves, find their local green spaces and actually improve it and start planting trees, how they do it, who they talk to, how they plant a tree, how they look after a tree, all of those questions, for example. So, so that's what we're currently doing. So, um, we, you know, we're working heavily on that over the next few months. So, if you do want to, you know, if you want to help us, you don't necessarily have to help us, but you know, you can help your, you know, you can help what we do, help, help, help us achieve our mission by doing it yourself in your own spaces. Um, you know, there's huge opportunities. It is, you know, these spaces are they belong to us. You know, they they're not. There's a, sometimes this sort of, I suppose, this thinking that you know, outside of our front door, that's our private space, and then the rest is public space. It belongs to somebody else. It's not. It's ours. It's all of ours. We collectively own it. So we need to take collective responsibility for, for making it work for us as well. So you know, I'd, I'd encourage people to get out there and do it yourselves. Brilliant. Thank you very much, David. Thank you for your time today, and uh, thank you for the excellent work you're doing. I hope Thanks, our paths cr- cross at a tree planting mission sometime soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Living Adventurously. If you did, please do rate and review the series on your podcast app. It really helps. Please also take a quick screenshot right now and send it to any of your friends who might appreciate listening. There are dozens of episodes for them to dip into. And if you enjoy mulling over the questions on my deck of cards, you can now try them out yourself. I've put them all into a notebook for living adventurously, which you can buy on my website. And whilst you're there, why not sign up for one of my three email newsletters or two other podcast series? Okay, enough of the sales talk. Thank you very, very much indeed for listening to Living Adventurously. I hope you'll come again soon.